Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study. It's been brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number eight, Joshua chapter five continued. We ended last week in Joshua chapter five, discussing this mass circumcision event at Gilgal that was instructed in verse 2. And it is obvious that this circumcision ceremony was a prerequisite for celebration of the Passover in Canaan. Now let's talk about this a little more because as I have mentioned each week as we study Joshua, we're going to see the laws that have been laid down in Torah begin to play out and manifest themselves in the lives of the people of Israel as they enter the promised land. The rules and instructions of God given through Moses out in the wilderness move from theory, from lofty idealism, into practical reality. Now that Israel has crossed over the Jordan and into the land of their inheritance, Canaan. The problem is that the connection between the Torah commands and the activities in Joshua and then in Judges, which we'll study next, are easy to overlook unless we know what to look for. And I suppose that little else is more important to me personally as a goal of this teaching ministry than to restore to the body of believers that organic connection between what has come to be called the two testaments of an unfortunately divided Bible. So let's reread a few verses of uh, Joshua chapter 5 this morning to, to get our bearings. Uh, open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 245. And we're only going to read about five verses starting in, in verse 2. Joshua chapter 5. It was at that time that Adonai said to Yahushua, Make yourselves knives of flint. Circumcise the people of Israel again a second time. So Yahshua made himself knives of flint and circumcised the people of Israel at Givat Harlot. The reason Yahshua circumcised was that all the people who had left Egypt who were males, all the fighting men, had died in the desert along the way after leaving Egypt. For although all the people who left Egypt had been circumcised, all those who had been born in the desert on the way as they went on from Egypt had not been circumcised. Because the people of Israel walked 40 years in the desert until the whole nation, that is, the fighting men who had left Egypt had died out because they had not heeded what Adonai said. Adonai had sworn that he would not allow them to see the land which Adonai swore to their ancestors that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their children to take their place. And it was these whom Joshua circumcised. Till then, they had been uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised while traveling. The Lord told Joshua that the reason that this so-called second circumcision was needed was because while the males of Israel had been circumcised before they left Egypt, 
during their time in the wilderness they had rebelled and suffered the penalty of being prohibited from entering the place of their destination, the land of promise. Further, that no circumcisions had occurred after leaving Egypt. So the generation, and this is key, the generation that was entering Canaan was uncircumcised. Now notice in verse 2, this instruction that knives of flint were to be used for the operation of removing the male's foreskins. By Joshua's day, flint knives were obsolete, having given way to bronze and even to iron. Archaeologists actually refer to Joshua's time as either the late bronze or early iron age. The significance of those titles are that at the heart of the Bronze Age, bronze was the hardest metal in general use. And it was always the hardest substances that were used to make knives and spearheads, cutting instruments, for obvious reasons. Now, as the title Iron Age implies, technology had developed to the point that iron metal, harder than bronze, was now being used. In the early Iron Age, use of iron was spotty, bronze was still the predominant substance of choice for making cutting instruments. The early Iron Age is defined as from about 1200 BC to about 1000 BC, about the time of King David. The point being, that the divine instruction to use flint knives for the circumcision ceremony was to tell Israel to use a type of knife that had gone out of use at least two or three centuries earlier. So why was flint called for? Since it's not explicitly explained in scripture, this has been a topic of interest among Hebrew and Christian scholars. And in the end, I see two reasons for it. One has to do simply with traditions that developed naturally, and the other with following a long-established God pattern. Now, the traditional aspect of it is that Joshua's ancestors, Abraham and Jacob, would have used flint knives to perform circumcisions. Okay. The use of a flint knife in the near-death incident of uh, Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac, but then of course being stopped by the Lord, also influenced the use of flint knives long after much better choices were available. Thus knives made of flint were preferred by the Israelite priests for centuries in the sacrificial rituals made at the tabernacle and then in the temple. Now I imagine it would have been quite dramatic to witness rituals using a flint knife as opposed to the more modern blades of bronze and iron used by the general population and thus there was greater meaning in a sense of the event being holy rather than ordinary. But from a spiritual perspective, the use of flint, of a flint knife, to cut off the foreskins of God's people represented the continuation of a God pattern. And that pattern was the command that we saw given to the patriarchs that they were to build altars for sacrifice 
to Yehovah, but that knives of bronze and then later iron could not be used to shape those stones. Why was flint okay and metal not? Because flint could be used to shape altar stones. Because flint was a natural substance, usable just as it was found. Metal had to be extracted, heated, purged of impurities, worked by men to be usable. Just as the altar stones were a 100% product of God and a 0% product of men, so was a flint blade. Metal required man's intervention, his creative intervention. And whenever man intervenes, the purity of God's creation is compromised no matter how carefully we try not to. Therefore, we see this connection between the stones used to build a holy altar of sacrifice to the Lord and to the men of Israel who come forward to be circumcised and in the doing become holy members of God's kingdom. Therefore, neither is to have a metal tool used on them in an act of obedience that essentially makes them members of a holy body. Now consider this. The stones used to build the holy altar were really just like all the other stones scattered on the ground. They were, they, they were not special stones. They weren't different stones. Whether used for the altar or not, they were all natural just as God made them. It was from a rather random act of selection that those particular stones would be selected, carefully fit together to produce a holy place of sacrifice to God. In fact, they were chosen from among stones that physically had no substantial differences. Yet once chosen, and once those stones were united together for the purpose of serving the Lord, those particular stones used for the altar became sanctified stones. And thus they had to be treated differently than ordinary stones because they had been separated and elected for service to God Almighty. The rule was that those now sanctified stones for the altar could not be changed. They could not be modified, particularly using man-made metal instruments applied to them. Anything man-made is by definition not created by God, and therefore it falls short of perfection. Those imperfect metal knives would take those stones that God had made perfect and add imperfection to them. Notice the parallel. The men, we have the men of Israel who physically were no different than any other human on the planet except that they were about to be selected and elected to become a set-apart people for God. Okay. Even genealogically by that time, the Israelites were mixed. Okay. Egyptians formed a substantial part of Israel. Foreigners from all races and cultures had been allowed to become Hebrews since the time of Abraham. So from among all men 
who were created physically the same, God selected those few who he would call Israelites and then once chosen, once united together for the purpose of serving the Lord, they became as sanctified stones and so had to be treated differently than all other men. As a symbol of that sanctification, the male Israelites' bodies could not be modified. Their foreskins could not be removed by means of a man-made metal knife any more than using a man-made metal knife could modify those altar stones. There's yet another fascinating element to this circumcision requirement that gets hidden from our view because of its translation from the original Hebrew. And this is such an important principle that you know I could barely wait for the day to come so I could tell you about it. <laughs> now everyone, just look down now at your Bibles to Joshua 5.4. Joshua 5.4. The reason Joshua circumcised was that all the people who had left Egypt who were males, all the fighting men, had died in the desert along the way after leaving Egypt. It says that the reason for this second circumcision ceremony at Gilgal was that all the people who had come out of Egypt, all the fighting men, died in the wilderness. Now look at verse 6. It says that the people wandered in the wilderness until all the people, the fighting men, died. And this was because they had disobeyed the Lord. Perhaps some of your translations will say that the people wandered in the wilderness until the whole nation died. Something like that. Here's the thing. Focus on the word people. Even if your translation in verse 6 is nation, it doesn't matter. Because the reference is still to the people who formed Israel and it's just how the translator determined to translate it. In verse 4, the Hebrew word that is being translated to people, the people who came out of Egypt, is Am. A-M. Am is a word used in the Bible, a Hebrew word used to denote God's nation or God's people. Technically now, it can mean people in the most generic sense. But more often it refers, in the Bible particularly, to kindred or fellow citizens. Once Israel had come into being with Jacob, the word Am became a word of endearment, reserved to explain this close relationship between the Lord and his chosen and set-apart people, Israel. They became his Am. Now in verse 6, another and different Hebrew word is employed that is generally also translated into English as either people or nation. And that word is goy. Okay, G-O-Y, goy. Goy is a word that also means nation or people in a generic sense. But once the Hebrew people were formed and set apart, goy became a word that referred to everybody else. It referred to non-Hebrew people. Later, goy 
actually came to mean Gentiles or pagans or pagan nations specifically. So Om in verse 4 refers to people set apart for God. Goy in verse 6 refers to people who are not set apart for God. You with me? In other words, hidden beneath the English translation is a very critical status change of those Israelites who had left Egypt. In God's eyes, they went from Om to Goy. From his people to no long, uh, to, to his, uh, fr from his people to people no longer set apart for him. In modern terms, we would almost say, from Jews to Gentiles. Therefore we see that because while still in Egypt, Moses ordered a circumcision ceremony for all Israelite males, they became physically and spiritually distinguished as God's people in spite of the fact that in all other respects they were not substantially, substantially different from the people they lived among, the Egyptians and the other foreigners, many of whom were Semites, who were not circumcised. So when the circumcised people were rescu rescued by God from Pharaoh and they left Egypt in what we call the Exodus, God at that moment classified them as his Om, his people. Remember, it is the act of circumcision that during this era was an outward symbol of a person's acceptance of God's covenants. Circumcision is the thing that made the male person an Israelite in the Lord's thinking. If one had not been circumcised, they were not an official member of Israel. Later, after leaving Egypt, Israel rebelled against God to the point that in his divine wrath, he determined they'd never be allowed to enter the promised land. He reclassified them, as we see happen from verse 4 to verse 6, from Om to Goy. People who were no longer in fellowship with him. Of course, this was in more of a spiritual sense than a physical sense. God never disbanded Israel. He even kept leading them in the fire cloud. So Joshua 5 goes on to explain that since all the circumcised Israelite men had died out during that wilderness journey and no circumcisions had occurred out there in the wilderness, there were no circumcised men. And therefore, from a spiritual reality, other than perhaps for, say, Joshua himself, there were no Israelites. Therefore, we come full circle to the point that here in Joshua, God is not about to turn his promised land over to people that he sees as spiritual goy. Gentiles, pagans, people who are no longer in fellowship with him, even though they were at one time. Thus the reason for this all-important mass circumcision ceremony at Gilgal. 
that had been ordered before Israel was even allowed to observe the feast of Passover unleavened bread and then first fruits in the land. Now I pray you can see the flow displayed here and the life and death God pattern and principle that's revealed in it. Israel is only Israel when they were accepted by God as members of his covenant community. And this was accomplished by means of the sign of circumcision in the bodies of the males. After their circumcision in Egypt, then God redeemed his people. After they were a circumcised people, God referred to them as Alm, his people. But soon this circumcised and redeemed people began to disobey him. After they left Egypt as the redeemed of the Lord, their still wicked hearts felt that now that they were redeemed, they, their God certainly had obligations to them. And they grumbled incessantly and they questioned him when he didn't do what they thought he ought to do. But on the other hand, they felt they could kind of pick and choose which of those laws they had received on Mount Sinai that they wanted to observe or not. The Lord saw this rebellion of his circumcised and redeemed people as sufficiently serious enough that he removed their special status from them. They went from being his people, his alm, to not his people, goy. That's what's being expressed here in Joshua 5. By the way, the book of Hosea goes to great lengths to express this same dynamic and principle and pattern in a whole other setting. The warning of God against the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel, who were rebelling against him. He said they would go from being Am, or Ami, to lo Ami as a result of their wickedness. Ami are by definition God's people. Lo Ami, lo by the way is Hebrew for no or non, all right, to not my people. Lo Ami is just essentially another way of saying goy. Okay? And sure enough, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom and millions of members of Israel who lived among those ten tribes were scattered across the Asian continent and the vast majority, not quite all, were absorbed into the cultures of the Gentiles to the point that they virtually became Gentiles. Goy, Loami. Now a word to the wise. We ignore this principle and pattern at our own peril. Despite a lot of dubious doctrines to the contrary, the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation makes it clear that it is the Lord who determines our status before him. And that just because we were redeemed at one time doesn't give us license to go our own way, disobey him with utter disregard for his holiness, and by doing so, to a serious enough degree, essentially renounce 
our redemption without the worst of consequences. So from a spiritual standpoint, from God's standpoint, the writer of Joshua says that it was three million goyim who had crossed the Jordan into Canaan, even though they went by the name of Israel. Bottom line, God will not turn his land, his kingdom over to spiritual goy, people who are not in fellowship with him. That privilege, the privilege of membership in the kingdom of God, goes only to those who abide in him. Those who he gives the status of and who he calls lovingly his alm, his people. Now naturally we see this principle presented in the New Testament. I won't go into all of the passages that it does. But Romans 2 and 3 especially talk about the requirement of circumcision to become a member of God's covenant community, regardless of whether one is a physical Jew or a physical Gentile. However, it is a circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh, that is now required. That is because the true circumcision that God is looking for is spiritual in nature, not physical. Further, Romans 11 goes on to use the illustration of an olive tree to make the same point as we just saw happening in Joshua. Paul makes it clear that just as many Hebrews were at one time circumcised and then redeemed and therefore made branches of the olive tree, they were removed from that tree for falling away from God. So it is with anyone, Jew or Gentile, who at one time receives a spiritual circumcision and redemption, but falls away from God. Paul warns us, you too will be cut off of that tree for failing to maintain your trust. Hear it, Romans 11:17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you too, a wild olive, a Gentile, were grafted in among them and you have become equal shares in the rich root of that olive tree, then don't boast as if you were better than the branches. However, if you do boast, just remember that you're not supporting the root, the root's supporting you. So, what will you say then? Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in? True enough, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. Be terrified. For if God did not spare his natural branches, he's not going to spare you. So take a good look at God's kindness and his severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off, but on the other hand, God's kindness towards you, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So, circumcised, and spiritually readied for the task ahead, Israel was now given the go-ahead to observe the spring festivals 
and the land of promise. Now, I realize that the only Bible feast mentioned, actually, physically mentioned, in these passages is Pesach, Passover. But that's because it was such common knowledge among the Hebrews that Passover unleavened first fruits came as a bundle of feasts. Okay? That's why it's critical for every believer to study Torah, and especially Leviticus. Because the way these feasts work is carefully laid out. Passover occurs on the 14th, unleavened bread the next day on the 15th, and first fruits the day after. There is no such thing as celebrating one of these feasts but not the others. They come as a package. Okay. Therefore, while verse 10 explains that Israel, Israel celebrated Passover, notice it also says that they ate matzah, unleavened bread, and ate the produce of the land. That's first fruits. Obvious references to the feasts of unleavened bread and first fruits. Look, the celebration of these three feasts and the ending of manna represents a transition of lifestyle for Israel. Rather than eating manna of the desert, they can now eat the produce from their own land, the land God gave to them. Obviously, the produce they ate this first time had been grown by the Canaanites. Okay? And until Israel conquered all the land, they would celebrate many feasts using grains and fruits and vegetables probably produced by their enemies. The key was that it was grown on the promised land and they were the consumers. But another point we must acknowledge is that now that Israel is more mature, they're expected to live off what the land produces rather than what God simply rained from heaven. This is a step that all who trust in the Messiah of the God of Israel needs to take. But we tend to resist it with the greatest effort. How desperately we try to just keep looking up and begging God to rain blessings upon us. When what he wants for us is to go forward as his army and claim the already plentiful bounty of his creation. But to do that takes boldness, it takes effort, it takes courage, and much greater faith and trust. Who wouldn't rather sit in their chair and pray for God's blessings rather than get to their feet and do what he commands? But there lies the difference between the baby believer and the mature believer. I mean, how often people have come to me or I've heard Christians lament and say, I need to be fed. John 21, 14. This was now the third time Yeshua had appeared to the Talmudim, his disciples, after being raised from the dead. After breakfast, Yeshua said to Shimon Kepha, Simon Peter, Shimon bar Yochanan, do you love me more than these? He replied, yes, Lord, you know I'm your friend. And he said to him, feed my lambs. 
The second time he said to him, Shimon bar Yochanan, do you love me? And he replied, yes, Lord, you know I'm your friend. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. The third time he said to him, Shimon bar Yochanan, are you my friend? Shimon was hurt that he questioned him that third time. Are you my friend? So he replied, Lord, you know everything. You know I'm your friend. Yeshua said to him, then feed my sheep. Now certainly, new believers, new disciples of Yeshua need to be fed and fed a lot. Sometimes, when we're in desperate times, we need to be fed. We can find ourselves in moments when we are paralyzed by life and we need to be fed and there is no shame in it. But that's not where we're supposed to reside or remain if it's up to us. As believers, it is as much our jobs to grow and mature as it is a child's to grow and mature. We're intended to move from needing to be fed every day to the, being the ones who feed others. Like Israel approaching the Passover only hours before, or rather after entering the Promised Land, a transition must occur in the lives of believers. Chapter 5 takes a very odd and sudden turn. At verse 13, Joshua looks up and in front of him stands a man with a sword in his hand. And without hesitation, Joshua confronts him and asks him a logical question. And I paraphrase, are you friend or foe? The man gives Joshua a strange answer. No. In Hebrew, it says the man responded low, and low, and indeed low means no. But this common Hebrew word can simply indicate answering in the negative with a number of different contexts. It can mean no, it can mean none, it can mean not, and in response to Joshua's question, it can mean neither. In other words, no, Joshua, it's not either one of those choices you just presented to me. Rather, says this man, he is the commander of the Lord's hosts. Actually, it says that he is the Tsar, S-A-R, of God's army or host. Tsar means the leader or a prince. Instantly, Joshua falls onto his face in worship and he asks this question. What does my Lord have to say to me? In Hebrew, it says, what does Adonai have to say to me? It was instantly obvious that the man who was standing in front of Joshua was a heavenly being, a representative of God at the least. Then we get a familiar command from this prince of the Lord's army. He says, take off your, your sandals because where you are standing is holy ground. We could spend a lot of time here, but I'm only going to deal with this briefly. Notice this was not a vision. This was not a dream. Joshua was not asleep. He was not in 
an ecstatic state. This was quite real. There indeed was a man standing in front of Joshua, even if it was an apparition. But who or what was this being? Well, whoever it was spoke with God's authority. When a regular angel, a God messenger, a Malach, came to people in the Bible, and the awestruck human first saw him, the usual reaction was to fall flat on your face before this being and worship him. In reaction, that angel, without fail, would tell that person to stand up and not worship him. Because he's not God. He's just a created being. In this case, the apparition accept, expects and accepts Joshua's worship and declares that because of its presence, this place is now holy. Let's dissect this for a minute because we run into this kind of troubling dilemma often in the Bible. Who was or what was in the burning bush that drew Moses to it? The usual answer is God. But you know what? The scripture doesn't say it was God. Rather, it says in Exodus 3.2 that it was the Malach of Yehovah that was in the burning bush. It says that it was the messenger of Yehovah who had appeared. Although, in this context, messenger is usually translated in our Bibles as angel. However, this messenger identified himself not as the Word, not as the Holy Spirit, but as the great I Am. And as a result of being in the presence of the great I Am, Moses was to remove his sandals because God's presence made the very dirt surrounding the area holy. So we find the expression, the angel of the Lord, and a number of places in the Bible, and it always has, interestingly, the Lord speaking in the first person. I, me. So the line between the nature of the angel of the Lord and God blurs. We find the same phrase as used here in Joshua 5.14, I am the Tsar of God's army, used in only one other place in the Old Testament, and this was in Daniel 8.11, as regards a vision Daniel was having while in exile up in Babylon. And this phrase in Daniel was speaking about God, but in a more offhand kind of way. We also find that the Shekinah, is also used as a physical but non-human apparition that is directly associated with God and God speaks as the Shekinah with authority and also he speaks about it in the first person. Here's the thing. This particular being standing before Joshua says he is the captain or leader or commander, take your pick, of God's warrior angels, his hosts. And the drawn sword 
It was a drawn sword. Remember that. Not a sheathed sword, but a drawn sword is, a, is symbolic of battle. So I'd like to make two points about this and then move on. Point number one. We have to be very careful, very discerning in our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. The word Trinity never appears in the Bible. Rather, it is a church doctrine created as a result of the phrase, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If one limits the meaning of the doctrine of the Trinity to mean that God manifests himself primarily as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I think that's the way we're supposed to take it. But if we expand that to mean that God manifests himself only as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit without the possibility of any other divine manifestation, then I start to have a little problem with that. Okay. What or who is the angel of the Lord? What or who is the Shekinah? What or who is that human apparition that approached Abraham and yet he called him Adonai? Nowhere does the Bible assign any of those divine manifestations of the Lord to the categories of Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. Yet it's obvious they were God in some form. See, the tendency in modern Christianity for a long time has been to establish a doctrine, give it a title, and then read that doctrine backwards into Scripture. And since the Trinity doctrine is sometimes in some denominations taught that God must be held within the mold of the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit and nothing else is possible, then any and every biblical reference to something that obviously represents God, like the Shekinah, the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's hosts here in Joshua, must be one of those three. And so any kind of physical appearance, if that happens, then it said, well, it must be Christ. Because he came as a physical being born to Miriam and Joseph. It's also interesting that this debate about this subject especially targets any Old Testament manifestation of God and makes it have to fit New Testament wording that was created hundreds of years later or it has to be discarded. So we have to be very, very careful with this. Now I wish I had a full answer to this dilemma of the full essence of God's nature and in the way that the Lord manifests himself. This is a dilemma that has dogged Christianity since Paul's time, that's befuddled Judaism since its emergence. But I don't have an answer for it. Okay. But neither am I satisfied with the concept of creating a doctrine, casting it in concrete, and then declaring that anybody who disagrees with it must not be a true believer. And this just so we can have a ready and firm and easy answer. Okay. Especially am I dissatisfied when this happens with something like a top, like this topic that is so hazy and requires liberal amounts of allegory or extrapolation spread all over it so as to make it heresy to question any part of it at any level. I don't think that's a good attitude. Let me be clear. I do 
generally accept the doctrine of the Trinity. But I do not take it so far as to say it fully explains every possible manifestation of God, the fullness of his nature, and that it should be a closed subject. Point number two. While this being in front of Joshua is a physical apparition, it is by definition a physical apparition of a spiritual being. It is clear from this commander of God's hosts that he has not come to do earthly battle. He has not come to battle against Joshua, nor has he come to add to Joshua's army as an earthly ally. His message to Joshua is in two parts. One part is spoken. Take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. The other part is this visual symbolism of the drawn sword as a warrior about to enter battle and the apparition identifying himself as the warrior leader of God's spiritual army. My best understanding of this is admittedly my opinion. Okay. My opinion is that the Lord is revealing to Joshua that while Joshua is doing battle on earth, the Lord is doing parallel battle in the heavens. God is showing Joshua that what goes on in heaven and what happens on earth are connected. This is the classic case of the reality of duality, that there is a spiritual reality occurring simultaneously with a physical reality and they operate like a pair of railroad tracks but only one of them is seen. On the other hand we can know where that invisible track is going because it's connected to the side we can see. Okay. Daniel makes vivid mention of spiritual princes doing battle that has some connection with happenings on earth, but yet we don't have Daniel's princes fighting human beings. There is a lot we just don't know about that spiritual realm and its definite but mysterious connection with the physical realm. On the other hand, I think I'd rather leave it that way and not give you a bunch of speculations by revered men that may or not be so. Many will say that this commander of the Lord's army in Joshua 5 is a pre-incarnate apparition of Jesus. I can't totally dismiss that view. But I also don't find anything concrete to back it up. That said, this does offer us a good illustration of another intractable problem for, I think, every believer. Was Jesus a flesh and blood man? Or was he God? Or was he a rather long-term apparition of God during his 33 years on earth? Or was he all of the above? Okay. My answer to that question is that Yeshua was God and he was man all at the same time and don't ask me how. But you know, it's not that easy or simple either. Because we find Jesus often praying to God, 
who is obviously a being outside of himself, and he's asking for God's will to be done and not his own. Otherwise, if that wasn't the case, we literally have Yeshua praying to himself. The evening before his execution, he's asking the Father if it might not be his will to take this horrendous event that's about to unfold away from him rather than his having to endure it. We even find John is baptizing Jesus and the Holy Spirit of God descends upon him. Well, are we saying that Jesus was an incomplete God until that moment? That is, as the Son of God, he wasn't enough of God to have sufficient power to do what he must? Again, I can't answer these questions, but I've already told you that I have faith that he was God and he was man because he said he was. So that settles it for me. How that is, I can't visualize it. I can't find the words for it. Right? It's a matter of faith that the word of God is true even if it seems impossible. Eh, ridiculous. By the way, does anyone here think that Joshua fully understood the nature of what stood before him with that drawn sword? Somehow, instinctively, by faith, Joshua knew to believe what that God, God apparition said to him. I suspect that Joshua instantly recalled the many times that Moses must have recounted to him the story of those incredible few minutes that he found himself lying face down before the burning bush as the Lord of creation spoke to him. Something was different enough about this being and bore sufficient authority that the last words of this chapter have Joshua responding to the commander of the Lord's army in this way. And Joshua did so. I think that's a very simple way to illustrate acting on faith when it is humanly impossible to understand your circumstances. Okay, we'll start chapter 6 next time.